0: Welcome to the podcast of the fabulous Las Vegas Rotary Club. My name is Michael Gordon and I'm proud to serve as the 95th president of the greatest Rotary Club in the world. Our club serves our local and international community through a variety of projects, but our main focus is on youth literacy. If you're ever in town for either business or pleasure, we invite you to join us at one of our weekly lunches. More information about meeting time and location can be found at LasVegasRotary.com. Now, sit back and enjoy this week's speaker.
1: Well, if any of you uh, are current on international affairs, or read the R.J. or look to the skies toward Nellis, you probably come up with some thoughts in your mind, what does, what does all this stuff mean? And I'm referring to some terms and maybe some abbreviations, such as R.P.A. or Drone. RPV, UAV, Reaper, Sentinel, how about Predator? How about Creech? What's an Air Force Base? Where is Indian Springs? Today, to carve through some of the mist, and perhaps provide some definition and some clarity to some of these terms, we have invited the Vice Commander of the 432nd Wing at Creech Air Force Base Colonel David Bisonet, I call him Bison, he doesn't know that. His tactical call sign is Deuce. He's going to open the door to Creech Air Force Base and explain what's going on. Colonel Bisonet.
2: Thank you all for inviting us today. Uh, because it is, you know, it's, it's Veterans Day weekend and while I'm here, I want to thank you all for taking this time, for offering us the opportunity to share our story uh, with the rest of the Las Vegas Valley. Before we get too far into this, uh, we already recognize all the, the military veterans that were here today. And going into the Veterans Day weekend, people are, are always looking to recognize the folks that are serving on active duty or in the reserves, the Air National Guard, the Army Guard. I also want to take a moment to, to thank the rest of you that are here as well. We are we are visitors in your in your community, and you know I've been here since 2009. I've went away for a couple years, but but I'm, I'm now back. These are our homes as well, right? Our moms and our dads are not, you know. There we have a handful that grew up here in Las Vegas, but most of us are not. What you are doing here in in the Rotary Club? So my dad was a Rotarian, and so I've been familiar with it for a long time. What you are doing here? is equally important to our society, to our nation, providing that connective tissue, providing service to those around us. I mean, you heard several different opportunities and and things that your club is doing to help people in the Valley. Thank you for, for recognizing us, but I also want to thank all of you for everything you do every day, for everybody that is living here in the Valley. Our military community takes advantage of a lot of what you offer. Uh, but more importantly you are one of the organizations that makes this not just a place to live but it's a community where we all work together and uh, thank you all for what you do for us. All right. I was told once that we always want to start off with a joke or a story or, and uh, tonight we're going to start with a video or this afternoon with a video. I'm going to cue it up to you uh, real briefly. The entire duration of the video is the entire duration of the event as it will unfold in real time. And the, uh, the folks that are involved in this, you know, your focus is on the young people in our society. 50% of our organization, which is over 2,500 people strong, are all under the age of 25. And this is what they do for our country every
3: day. Our uh, main mission is persistent, dominant uh, attack and reconnaissance for our U.S. forces as well as our coalition partners. Uh, Most days start out the same. Uh, We show up on base and we get where our mission is going to be for that day. Um, This day started out just like that and we didn't expect anything uh, to be different as we're walking through the door. So when we first got in the seat uh, we had checked in with our coalition forces on the ground. Uh, We got an update of where they were to keep them safe. That's our primary focus and then what they were looking for uh, for that day. We then started scanning around, uh, gathering intelligence of the local area. That's when we noticed a vehicle uh, out of the corner of the screen that was moving towards the Friendly Force location. This was not normal of an action for the town, so we relayed to the Friendly Forces that this was coming towards them. When we zoomed in, uh, we noticed features uh, that distinguished it from a normal vehicle, such as armor plating, uh, such as the tires and wheels being blocked off in like, the windshield, so that bullets from rifles couldn't penetrate it. Uh, this is an indication for us of a V-Bed, or a vehicle-borne improvised explosive device. So we relayed this to Friendly so they could try to uh, take as much action as possible.
1: Stand by for uh, friendly, but there'll be no mark. Standby for friendly. Oh, egress overhead. The,
3: this is However, eight. based on the speed that we saw them, we knew they may only have a few minutes until this Mad Max vehicle, as we called it, actually reached them.
1: Nine, five, eight, eight, feet. Label this Mad Max.
3: And that's when we had to take the actions uh, that we did. Ready when you are.
1: Ready. That's the vehicle, just shoot it.
3: The one minute was the planning, and then actually a 30 second time of flight. And all in all, it only took about two minutes or two minutes and 20 seconds. A a hellfire explosion on our camera, you can see a small explosion, uh, only a few meters, a few feet uh, washed out on the screen. However, on this explosion, uh, we had to zoom out multiple levels back and back to even see it. Um, Looking at it afterwards, it was approximately 400 meters, about four football fields wide of an explosion, uh, which is abnormal for a hellfire. Uh, So we knew right then, we had verification that this was indeed car bomb
1: Rifle, five seconds
3: splash. Four six, splash. Oh. Uh, we stopped this vehicle roughly about a mile away from friendlies and uh, if we estimated it had it continued it would have been less than a minute until uh, friendly forces would have came in contact with them. Uh, We had a total of about 800 to 850 estimated friendly forces on the ground, uh, coalition, U.S., as well as the indigenous Iraqis. Our weapon is designed to save lives on the ground. Uh, We're very precise. We can put our weapons in places that most fighters cannot. We can get closer to ground forces with less risk. Uh, To the guys on the ground, I just want to say that we are there for them every day. Uh, Our sole job and purpose is to make sure that they're safe.
2: That is what our young Americans are doing for our country every day. So that those events unfolded outside of Mosul in Iraq, uh, probably about nine months ago, and it was uh, ISIS was still in control of the city. And these are some of the ISIS fighters that were trying to, to uh, attack the Iraqi forces that were hopefully or, and have now have since retaken that city from uh, from ISIS. So what are we doing up at Creech? Uh, Creech Air Force Base, about fifty-three miles from where we're standing right now, uh, way up in Indian Springs. So you guys all know where, where OJ's prison is uh, on the way up north. We're, we're about another 20 minutes past OJ. Uh, you know, it's unfortunate. I feel kind of sad now that he's no longer there, because I used to say hi to him every morning as I drove by. I don't know if you knew that or not. Uh, but what you just saw is what we were providing the, the combatant commanders, so the folks that are in charge of fighting our nation's wars across the globe uh, each and every day. Our priorities are obviously to win the fights that we've been uh, given to execute, empowering our airmen to innovate. Uh, We're a rapidly changing community and we rely on our our very youngest folks to make big changes to not only the equipment that we use, but the way that we use it in order to, to fight our wars. And then just like a lot of you in this room, one of our biggest priorities is making sure we develop the leaders that are going to carry on our torch as we go forward. So Making sure that we get folks the right experiences, the right training, uh, to, so we can leave it in better hands. And then uh, supporting the Hunter family. So we go by the Hunters. Uh, that's our, our nickname for our organization. And uh, a lot of the folks in this room, we've got some honorary commanders, obviously the USO, uh, a lot of other folks in the community that do things for our airmen uh, and their families. So I want to thank you for, your part, for the part that you play in taking care of us. Our organization up at Creech, uh, that's a lot of patches across the top. I'm going to go across from left to right just real, real fast. Uh, we've got a couple of folks that do some support on the two on the left. Uh, and then we've got 12 combat squadrons that are flying MQ-9s, and then a couple squadrons that are flying RQ-170s, which are kind of little B2 stealth drones. You won't see those around very much, but they're out and about. And then we've got a couple groups of folks that are providing the uh, that are essentially our landlords up there at Creech and they're, they're actually assigned to the Nellis, the broader Nellis community, uh, but they are very much an in- intrinsic part of our organization. All told, we're about 25 to 2,600 folks. Uh, if you include all the contractors that are working up there as well, we go upwards of about 3,500 people that call Creech uh, their office on a day-to-day basis. These are the two airplanes that we're primarily flying. On the left is the MQ-1 Predator. It's about the size of a Cessna 172 that you would have seen on that video. It can carry two Hellfire missiles. Hellfire missile for the uneducated is uh, an Army-designed weapon to go after tanks. And we've modified it over the course of the last 15, 20 years, and it can do all kinds of crazy stuff now uh, where I can shoot at targets that are behind me. Uh, but it's a pretty amazing weapon. It's only got a 5-pound warhead, and as you saw with that explosion for that vehicle-borne explosive, I mean, that was a really, really, really large explosion for just a 5-pound warhead. So uh, it's still very, very effective. Uh, The MQ-1s will be phased out here in the springtime, so our last sorties up at Creech will be in the March timeframe. On the right is what we're moving to, which is a lot larger. It's about the size of an A-10. Uh, which is the the army's favorite ground attack aircraft with a big thirty millimeter cannon. Ours doesn't have the the big Gatling gun, uh, but we do carry four Hellfire missiles and a couple five hundred pound bombs. Uh, much more resilient, can you know flies faster and all that kind of thing. And the uh, so the air force is is moving to that as the, as we go forward. Here are a couple of the sensors that we have on the airplane. So on the left is a uh, is just an electrical optical picture. So that's the, the TV camera that we have on board the airplane. On the right hand side is a, that same picture or a similar picture in infrared. So looking at the differences in the heat signature on the ground. Uh, not too different than the cameras that you have on your police helicopters that are flying around the Las Vegas Rally right now. Uh, one unique thing though that we have is the a synthetic aperture radar. So if it's cloudy outside in the, in the bottom center is a picture that we can generate just by using an onboard radar and taking a whole bunch of pictures and you stitch them together and it builds an image of the, the metal that's, that's out there. Just so you can, just to get a sense of how, how good these cameras are, this would be a normal, you know, you're looking out the window of, of the airplane as it's flying. And as, you know, that's the target that we're going to look at within that red circle. And we got a couple different zoom levels. We're going to move a little bit closer, a little bit closer, a little bit closer. Okay. On the infrared, same kind of thing, we can see uh, pretty good detail on, on the individual targets. And that's why you know when we were able to zoom in on that particular vehicle, we got a pretty good idea that it wasn't just somebody driving their car uh, around town in the middle of Iraq, that it was actually uh, no kidding a, a hostile vehicle now before you guys get too worried we 're not allowed to use these cameras outside of federally owned territory, so we 're not going to be lo- flying around Las Vegas, looking in the back in your backyard or anything like that okay uh, just like Just like the police, uh, we have to have a uh, specific reason to be looking at particular targets on the ground, so we 're prohibited by law from going out and looking inside the Las Vegas Valley. Uh, we've got some training ranges just north of us, uh, the Nevada Test and Training range, where we have targets that are set up, and you know there's not people out there there's just you know trucks and tanks and uh, that type of stuff for us to look at. Uh, but if you know the Air National Guard does fly some of these airplanes as well, and they've got a different legal authority than the active duty military where they've got some uh, some police action responsibilities where a sheriff or a deputy could come and get in the back of the cockpit. Uh, and they can we can use these systems in order to help them out uh, we were involved in disaster relief in haiti uh, we 've done some of the we not not my unit, but uh, these types of airplanes have been involved with some of the firefighting uh, the wildfires that have been going on in California and the in the northwest. How do we do this when we 're flying from here in Nevada while the airplanes are over Iraq and Afghanistan the when we first built these airplanes, we had to fly them kind of like you would with your, you know, the commercial quadcopters that you can go down to Lowe's and pick, a, or not Lowe's, but like Target and that kind of stuff, where you had to be, I had to be able to see the airplane as it was flying around, and that's how we fought when we went to Bosnia back in 1998. And what happened is that if you're familiar with the terrain out there, there's a whole bunch of mountains, and every now and then the plane would fly behind the mountain, we'd lose contact with the airplane, uh, and then it would. Have to go fly its, its uh, backup profile until we were able to see it again. When we observed this, we're like, okay, let's. We need to find a solution to that. And so what we did is we we tied in some commercial satellites that are across the globe. And instead of commuting via, communicating with the airplane via just a line of sight antenna, now we communicate via satellites. For the, uh, just a commercial off the shelf. You know, I don't know who all the vendors are, but if you wanted for your business to use some satellite time. They're the same vendors that we would use as well. so now what we do is I'm going to pl- do a little pointing here while the airplane is over in Afghanistan, we've got our cockpits that are located here uh, in Nevada. I will be in the cockpit. I'll move the stick, move the throttle, try and get the airplane to go faster and the the cockpit that I'm in turns all those switch actuations into just ones and zeros, you know standard like you would be. You know when you're typing email out on AOL, or chat on AOL, those ones and zeros, that digital command, goes across the terrestrial fiber optic networks that we have here in the United States. So it could be AT&T, could be Verizon, could be uh, Dave and Sue's you know backyard fiber optic network over in you know the middle of the north, uh, the Midwest. Those signals go over to the East Coast. Once they get to the East Coast, they go underneath the Atlantic Ocean on some of the fiber optic cables that we have there over to a satellite farm in the middle of Europe. Once those signals get to Europe, they get beamed up through satellite dishes to the satellites that are over the Middle East. They bounce off that satellite and down to the top of the airplane. The airplane gets those ones and zeros and says, hey, I know what to do with this. Adds more fuel to the engine, uh, deflects the flight controls, moves the camera, and the airplane reacts accordingly. Once it reacts, it takes the feedback pushes it back through the satellite, satellite dish, uh, to the satellite dish, underneath the Atlantic Ocean, across the terrestrial fiber optic networks, back to our cockpits, and then we get to see on our end what the airplane is doing. And then from there, when we're tracking that MadMex vehicle, we've got, it takes about a second and a half, almost two seconds, to make that round trip, but that's still good enough, good enough for us to be able to go and attack those types of vehicles. So it's pretty cool technology we're using. This is a, what the cockpit looks like. A lot of uh, monitors, but there's still a, a little uh, tough to read here. But we still have a, uh, a stick and a throttle like you would in an airplane. You've got a bunch of radios in the second in the center. Uh, cockpit displays what you would see looking out the front of the airplane. The big takeaway is that it's a lot of the same stuff as you would have inside an F-15 or any of the modern fighters that we have out there today. We're just not constrained by that three-dimensional shape of an F-15, which is in the bottom left-hand corner, right? So, if, and the F-15, they've got a lot of four-inch by four-inch monochrome displays. Well, if I'm not tied to that particular shape, why don't I use a 21-inch monitor with you know nice colors and all that kind of stuff? So that's that's why our cockpits look the way they do, a little little funky. Where are we conducting current operations? Primarily in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan today. Uh, We do have some folks that are doing a little bit of work in Africa uh, and in Yemen, uh, but not a whole lot. Primarily, the vast majority is Syria, Iraq, uh, fighting ISIS. Uh, Obviously, the Taliban, they're still a factor out in Afghanistan. This is a uh, couple, couple months old picture of the laydown of forces within Iraq and Syria. So all the light green area and the top are... The forces that we're aligned with, uh, and that was the land they occupied at that point in time. And the red is the remaining area that ISIS had controlled. Uh, I'll let you know that all the, the red in the center is all pretty much now just around those two towns. So if you were watching the news over the course of the last week or two, uh, we had, we were almost done with. Taking all of the territory all of the the real estate away from isis so that's a that's a really big really big deal for our country and uh, <laughs> thanks. one of the interesting things that uh, the story that we'd like to tell when we first brought these airplanes on uh, when we first bought the two demonstrators from the Army and then started buying them as an Air Force. We were primarily just doing intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance using those cameras that I showed you. What has transpired since 2001, so I don't know if you guys remember anything that happened in 2001, uh, but as part of that, we started putting weapons on these airplanes because someone might have been watching uh, Osama bin Laden at some point in time but unable to do anything about it. And so we wanted to make sure that if we had the opportunity, if our airplanes were there and we saw that type of a target, uh, that we could go ahead and strike him instead of just having to sit there and watch. Um, I think the uh, Benghazi situation is another story where we did actually have a predator that was overhead when Benghazi was getting overrun, but due to the restrictions that the host nation had, uh, we w- did not have weapons on the airplane, and so we got to just be the, you know, the news reporters in the sky with the video camera uh, without a whole lot of ability to, to do much about it. That has changed over time, and where we are right now is on, in the bottom left-hand corner, there's uh, it's a chart with some stats that's probably hard to read from from the back of the room, even from the front of the room with old man eyes like I have. The... It's a prioritized list of different types of airplanes and how many weapons that they're dropping. So if if any folks are familiar with the A-10, still dropping the preponderance of weapons in 2016. They dropped about 19% of all the weapons that were dropped in Iraq and Syria. The F-16s, 18%. The MQ-1s and MQ-9s, 18%. And the Strike Eagles, the F-15s, 17% and the F-18s, 17%. So across all the services, the amount of weapons that are being employed by our young airmen, men, women, 25 years and younger, uh, is on par with all the different fighters that we have in in the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marine Corps inventory, at least in this particular theater. So a lot of work. Uh, I'm going to show you another uh, brief video. This is a, a town called Manbij. It's in Syria. This is uh, now we're talking middle, so June of 2016. As we were moving uh, into Iraq and Syria and moving ISIS out, this is one of the the main cities that was a throughway between their eastern and western bases in Syria.
4: What's little known about that operation that took just over two months to free Manbij from the control of ISIS is that air crews flying U.S. Air Force MQ-1Bs and MQ-9s provided over 11,000 hours of persistent attack and reconnaissance in direct support of the partnered force on the ground. That's over 500 sorties from our cockpits in the continental United States. I think the most difficult thing about being a sensor operator during this offensive was keeping mentally physically focused on what was going on. Because at any given time we were sent over to help out if we were nearby and I always had to be mentally prepared to release weapons and to get rid of the enemy assets to make sure our guys on the ground were safe. One of the things that's important to remember about going after and, and really getting to the heart of what was going on in Man Beach is that the people that we were fighting were not the, the residents of Man Beach. Uh, ultimately we wanted as much as possible I think as as a, as a fighting force for them to have uh, a home to go back to. Most of the, the action was on the outskirts of the town, so a lot of it was small villages, open country. As they pushed in uh, towards July, they actually were able to encircle the city and began the offensive in, in a more difficult environment, and so we are able to provide full motion video and a better situational awareness of the battlefield. We also don't have to do aerial refueling; We're able to stay on station for 20 hours at a time and provide a constant overwatch for the friendly forces. One of the things that I saw in Man Beach that I thought was truly unique was the proximity where we can be a lot more precise with the weapon. We can have the effect that we need to have which is to, to strike at enemy forces, to strike at enemy vehicles, uh, enemy weapons caches or something like that without turning the entire building into, into rubble. MQ-109 air crews employed over 300 hellfires. That's over 40% of the total of kinetic strikes executed by any coalition platform. It was very rewarding for my squadron to see the results of their disciplined use of air power. When, in late August, we saw the
5: video that was coming up at Manbij, the video of the men and my children reclaiming their city, they were very happy to be free from ISIS rule. And we were absolutely
4: proud play a critical part in the liberation of this city to making their lives better. For the past 70 years, the Air Force has been breaking barriers as a member of the finest joint warfighting team on the planet. And what that joint warfighting team accomplished in Manbij, with our coalition partners in the air and partnered forces on the ground, is evidence of the fact that the military defeat of ISIS is
2: inevitable. All right, just going to give you a, a close with a couple quick charts. When we first started, uh, when we first moved up to Creech Air Force Base, it was back in in the late 90s, so 95, 96. It was a very small, uh, very small program. When I first showed up in the 2009 time frame, you know, we were flying about 35, 32, 33 combat lines a day around the globe. Uh, we got up to 65 combat lines a day. I mean, that's from from a business standpoint, I mean that is incredible growth over the course of ten years, and you know we've we've brought a whole lot of people into the community. The uh, you guys have been incredibly supportive of everything that we're doing up there, so we we thank you. Just a quick idea of what the day in the life is: uh, we have we run three shifts, just like any kind of production facility. So a day shift, a swing shift, a mid shift. Uh, they are eligible to be in the seat about 8 hours a day, and because of the pre-brief that they have to do and then the post-brief that they have to do, it ends up being about 10 hours that they are at work, plus the, you know, depending on where you live in the Vegas Valley, anywhere from a 30-minute to a full-hour commute back and forth. So, you know, you could have a 12-hour day uh, every single day. It's about five days on. You've got a a day to do kind of administrative-type work, a two-day weekend, and then you'll lather, rinse, repeat. And you do that for about six weeks, and then you'll move shift from the day shift to the swings, and then swings to mids, and then mids back to days. So it's kind of a grind for the folks that are, that are working up there. And I just want to call out uh, the folks like the USO that have made a spectacular effort, spectacular effort to really help out those folks that are, that are working those kinds of schedules. We also have a human performance team. Some folks, uh, what's out in the media is that, you know, it's, it's incredibly difficult from a psychological standpoint to be going home to mom and the kids after you've been out at work, uh, killing enemy combatants across the globe. Uh, I'll tell you that it's not that bad. The, you know, if you're making a movie, you want to tell the, the most uh, glamorous story that's out there. And while we do have a couple folks that need help, the vast majority are, are quite solid. For those folks that actually do need help, we have a human performance team, uh, we've got a, a good chaplain corps, we've got physiologists, we've got some so operational psychologists that help people work through the different challenges that they might face. Uh, and it's not just tied to the actual combat itself, but it could be you know family problems, uh, marital problems, uh, child care, health issues, that kind of thing. With that, uh, I want to thank you all again for the support that you provide to the greater Las Vegas community uh, I know that our airmen, both at Creech and at Nellis, rely on a lot of the services that you provide. Uh, you know you talked about the Wetzel Awards already today, uh, the different scholarships that are out there. You provide that connective tissue for all of us that are gathering here in the Las Vegas Valley from across the United States in order to execute this mission, and we really couldn 't do it without your help. So thank you all very much for everything you do for us. Are to take a couple of questions? Yeah, absolutely. All right, uh, sir.
5: they do detect you, what can you do about it when you're in the sky? And number two is, are the bad guys getting drones and are you encountering them and what are you doing about them?
2: Uh, Let's see, how do I want to attack that? Yes, uh, other countries do have similar type of drones. Uh, So The the Israelis have a series uh, that they they produce and that they export. Uh, Canada flew Israeli models for a period of time uh, we are exporting our version to our NATO allies, uh, but the Iranians have some that they're operating as well. The Russians have some that they're operating. Uh, most of them are not weaponized, uh, and the ones that are are very, not nearly as reliable uh, and don't, certainly don't have the same capability of what you just saw in those couple of videos. So they are out there. Um, as far as their people on the ground, their ability to detect us, uh, there is. I mean, if I'm going to fly overhead in one of these airplanes, the, you know, the MQ-1s and MQ-9s, they're, while they're significantly quieter than the F-15s and the F-16s that you'll hear when you're over in, in the northwest northeast corner of Las Vegas, you can still hear them, uh, you know, particularly in Afghanistan where you've got a lot of mountains without a whole lot of uh, trees to kill the sound. Uh, it funnels all that noise, and when there's no ambient noise because you're out on the hillside, uh, yeah, they can hear us. You know, we, we stay far enough away to try and reduce that sound profile. But yeah, if I fly directly overhead, they're going to hear me. Absolutely. Well, uh, you just try and avoid it, right? I mean, you can't stop the airplane from making noise, unfortunately.
1: Avoid. <laughs> what?
2: Uh, why don't we uplink to a satellite from Nevada instead of doing all of that connection through underground cable to Europe? Ge- uh, geometrically, if I have a satellite that is overhead the United States, it it will not have the ability to reach to the other side of the globe. So we need to. You could do some sort of uplink to a satellite here, and then bounce it off two or three satellites to get on the other side of the globe, or we can just do fiber optic networks to get that, to get there. But we we're just not under the same satellite footprint.
5: Okay, sir. Yeah, a year or so ago, I seem to remember hearing the Iranians electronically intercepted a drone and brought it down. What? Can you talk to that? What what happened on that? Or was that BS? or what, What's the deal
2: on that? Yeah, um, that? The particular airplane that that applied to, uh, I can't. I don't have the the ability to talk about it in an unclassified setting, unfortunately. I, I'm sorry, that's the same question I asked when I got back to the, val- <laughs> the Valley. And they told me the same thing. So we, have we have one think. right behind
1: <laughs> me here. Yes, well, just one two quick questions, but one is, uh, is it strictly military who are sitting in front of those screens? Now, the Rotary was invited to a visit to Creech and we saw the operation. And my other question is, how do you keep them if they're doing 50 hours a week? How do you really have them stay in concentration looking at a screen like that?
2: Uh, So the first question, uh, we do have civilians that are flying these airplanes as well. Uh, we have some contractors that are here flying locally that that are the the schoolhouse teachers, right? That are teaching the guys like me when I first show up how to do takeoffs, how to do landings, how to employ the systems. So we do have some contracts fo- contract folks doing that. Uh, we also have the the United States government is also paying some contractors to fly some of these airplanes uh, in Afghanistan and in Iraq. Uh, it's a very small subset and and they are not carrying any weapons whatsoever. So from a, from a rule of law standpoint, civilians aren't allowed to shoot weapons, and so we make sure that they are, they are not flying weaponized airplanes. Uh, what was the second question again? Yeah, retention is a big issue. Uh, it is a challenge. When I've, During that really steep growth, uh, guys were working six days on, one day off, 12-hour shifts, and it was really, really tough. Uh, what we, are, we have grown enough new pilots and sensor operators that we've gotten to the point where it's semi-sustainable, and we're going to grow over the course of the next few years. Uh, we're going to stand up some new squadrons, and we're going to be able to pull an entire squadron out of combat for you know, three months at a time so that they can be home with their kids and they can just have somewhat of a normal life for, for that three-month period before they go back in for another six months of combat.
5: All right. Thank you. Um, sorry to have to cut him short, but we do have to finish up the program. Um, if you wouldn't mind staying a few minutes, there were a number of other people that had a few questions, and if, if you would entertain them for a couple of minutes, uh, it would be most I of Right. We have a tradition in our club where we give our speakers what we call the Share What You Can Award, and a meal will be provided to a veteran in need in your name. So thank you for being here, and thank you for your service to the country. Colonel. great to have you here. Colonel McAdam, let's close this down.
1: Please remain seated. Um, I'm going to call the junior ROTC cadets in for a flag folding ceremony.
6: Vegas Rotary Club and invited guests. Welcome to the Paula Verde Air Force Junior ROTC flag folding ceremony. The flag folding ceremony honors our flag and represents the same religious principles on which our country was originally founded. The portion of the flag denoting honor is the Canton field of blue. It contains the stars that represent the states our veterans are from. When draped as a pall on the casket of a veteran, The cantifued of blue dresses from left to right and is inverted. The flag being folded by our team was flown over the skies of Kuwait and Iraq on a combat mission in a U.S. Air Force F-16 Fighting Falcon during Operation Southern Watch and Enduring Freedom. In the Armed Forces of the United States, at the ceremony retreat, the flag is lowered, folded in a triangle fold, and kept under watch throughout the night as a tribute to our nation's honored dead. The fold of our flag is a symbol of life. The second fold is a symbol of our belief in the internal life. The third fold is made in honor and remembrance of a veteran departing our ranks who gave their life for the defense of our country to attain peace throughout the world. The fourth fold represents our weaker nature, for as American citizens trusting in God, it is to Him we turn in time of peace, as well as in times of war, for His divine guidance. The fifth fold is a tribute to our country, for in the words of Stephen Decatur, our country, in dealing with other countries, may she always be right, but it is still our country right or wrong. The Sixfold is for where our hearts lie. It is with our heart that we pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. The seventh fold is a tribute to our armed forces, for it is through the armed forces that we protect our country and our flag against all her enemies, whether they be found within or without the boundaries of our republic. The eighth fold is a tribute to the one who entered into the valley of death, the shadow of death, that we might see the light of day, and to honor Mother whom it flies on Mother's Day. The ninth fold. Is a tribute to womanhood, for it has been through their faith, love, loyalty, and devotion that the character of the men and women who have made this country great has been molded. The tenfold is a tribute to Father, for he too has given his sons and daughters for the defense of our country since they were first born. The eleventh fold represents the God-fearing foundation and gives us strength to persevere over our enemies and compassion for those we have vanquished. The 12th vote is a tribute to our nation's youth, for they are the future generations who will carry our flag aloft with courage, strength, and pride. In, it takes on the appearance of a cocked hat, ever reminding us of the soldiers who served under General George Washington and the sailors and marines who served under Captain John Paul Jones and the soldiers, sailors, and airmen who followed in the armed force of the United States, preserving for us the rights, privileges, and freedoms we enjoy today. In the morning, the flag is brought out and at the ceremony of Reveille, run aloft as a symbol of our belief in the resurrection of the body. Thank you. This concludes our ceremony. (laughs) Will you please stand for the posting of the colors?
5: Thank you. Let's give it up for the JROTC group. Beautiful job. Again, thank you to all our veterans, active duty. Thank you to all Rotarians for making a difference. And as a takeoff on what Michael would say, our military (laughs) is like this hammer. Whoever has the biggest one usually wins. (laughs) Meeting
0: adjourned. Thank you for joining us for another wonderful meeting of the Rotary Club of Las Vegas. If you're interested in membership or want to know more about our upcoming projects and speakers, please visit LasVegasRotary.com for more information. Now go forth and make a difference.